Welcome to our podcast, Bad, it's all about crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir, and each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. So, Andy, here we are, 2022, January already behind us in what has been. I'm just thinking of a way to try and describe it. Really a bit of a roller coaster start to the year. On the upside, Andy, here we are together in the studio again. It's good to be back, isn't it? It's sort of, it feels like it's been a strange summer, a summer of mixed bags. Are there any highlights for you? Well, I think it's just, you know, every Christmas it's great to catch up with friends and family, even uh, you know, in this sort of crazy period that we're experiencing. And um, uh, sort of even socially distanced, it was good to see friends and, um, you know, share in the, in the summer period. It was, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. But uh, the year has started again with a vengeance. Yeah. Uh, the emails and bookings and everything have, uh, have been flying in the last few weeks, including the uh, the plans for what we've got for the rest of the year with the podcast and uh, our other events. And the books have been coming in. I've um, I've been reading The Mother by Jane Carrow. I don't know if you've got your hands on I, it. I have started that. I'm uh, Yes, I'm looking forward to, uh, to that. I don't know whether we should say any more, but, you know, it's a bit of a hint, isn't it, when we both say we've both got a book that we're reading <laughs> and, to keep an eye out for. And on the mother theme, The Good Mother by Ray Cairns has also been on my radar. How about you, Andy? Yes, yes. That's um, it's another one on my radar too. Gee, we're dropping hints a lot, aren't we? <laughs> Not on your radar might be The Covered Wife by Lisa Emanuel, less a crime book than a story about um, murky secrets. Yes, well, murky secrets is kind of a good crime topic, isn't it? It is. So, um, as you know, Andy, today we've got a bit of a special surprise in store for our podcast listeners, and we're bringing to you one of the sessions from last year's Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. In particular, it's the session I chaired called What Lies Below the Surface. It was a live session on stage in the State Library of New South Wales, and it was so exciting to be in front of an actual audience. I spoke to crime writers Barry Maitland, Anna Downs and Wendy James about the murky secrets that lie just below the surface in each of their novels. Look, I found it a really great session, and I particularly loved hearing Barry and Anna and Wendy describe the inspiration behind their writing. Andy, it was very comforting and um, always gives me a smile to see you there in the audience. How did you enjoy the session? Yeah, look, I liked it a lot. I thought it was it was really interesting to hear, you know, three authors at very different stages of their career, but also talking sort of similar um, similar problems and challenges with their writing and, um, you know, the sort of the, the perils of, of, uh, of, of, of that process yeah it was really good and I thought it was a really warm room which also helps. I think what I found particularly interesting about that panel was how warmly all the writers spoke about the world of crime writers and crime readers and just how welcome they felt. Did did you get that vibe as well? Yeah yeah I did and it's sort of it's really interesting as well that you've got you know authors that are you know, English writing in Australia, you've got English writers writing about the UK, you've got, they're all from different places, 
Um, you know, yeah, it was really fascinating. But they all were sort of on the same page. They're all kind of quite collaborative and, and collegiate in that conversation as well, which was great. And taking us back to the festival, it was great to pop in and see you each day of the festival. It was a four-day festival and um, there were so many events on. What were the highlights for you, Andy? Oh, look, I um, I actually spent most of the festival in the green room. I, um, I kind of seemed to be on that roster a few times when people were sort of um, in between things. And I found it just, it was so much fun, as you said earlier, to just be in the same room with people and to be sort of meeting people, you know, in real life and just chatting. And the, the festival had just such a fantastic energy about it. Um, I think everyone was kind of excited to be talking about crime and sharing books and just sort of hanging out. So even if you kind of didn't get to a lot of sessions, and which was sort of my fault, um, it was just sort of great to kind of be in that space and to kind of be around that energy. And I just came away so energised and excited about the um, about crime writing, about being part of the crime community that, um, yeah, I'm really, really excited and looking forward to uh, the festival this year. Me too. And I must say I, I agree with your sense of the buzz that surrounded the green room. But even more than that, sort of beyond the green room where the cafe was and the bookshop was, readers and writers were mingling really happily. The book signings were going really well. And I really did feel a buzz of energy, perhaps more even than the years before, given we'd all been so alone and were suddenly back in company. Yeah, that's right. It's, and and that was, you know, something that, you know, you can only get at a festival. It's those kind of random conversations where, you know, members of the audience can just have a, a chat as, you know, you're standing around the book signing table. As, as we've both said, it was really exciting. And so now without further ado, uh, let's listen once more to the session I chaired, What Lies Below the Surface, with crime writers Barry Maitland, Anna Downs and Wendy James. Hello and welcome to the 2021 Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Welcome here and it's um, it's lovely to have you. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm the author of three novels, most recently The Deceptions and The Teacher's Secret. And I'm so delighted to be here with Barry Maitland, Anna Downs, who's beside me, and Wendy James, who's on the other side of the room. And our session is What Lies Behind, below the surface, which gives us an awful lot to talk about at a crime writers festival. We are, of course, on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. Now to my guests. Let me introduce you. Anna Downs was born and raised in the UK, but she now lives in the central coast of New South Wales. So that's good enough for us to all claim her as ours. <laughs> She trained as an actor, appearing in BBC shows including EastEnders, Casualty and D and Pascal. Pasco. Anna's um, first novel, The Safe Place, was inspired by her experiences working as a live-in housekeeper on a remote French estate, which for those who have read The Safe Place, I'm told, um, was a pleasant experience. But in fact, the setting was inspired by the remote estate where she worked. Uh, as you'd also know, The Safe Place has become an international bestseller and The Shadow House, which you'll see in front of you, is Anna's second book. Welcome to you, Anna. Thank you. <laughs> I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> 
Born in Scotland, Barry Maitland came to Australia to head up the School of Architecture at the University of Newcastle. So really, he's ours as well, too. The Marx Sisters, the first in his London-based Brock and Collar crime novels, was published in 1994, and 13 more have followed in that series. He's also written the Australian-based trilogy Crucifixion Creek, Ash Island and Slaughter Park, featuring Sydney homicide detective Harry Beltry. He won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Novel in 1996 and has been regularly shortlisted for the award ever since. The Russian Wife, which you'll also see in front of you, is his latest Brock and Collar novel. Welcome to you, Barry. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Wendy James is the author of eight novels, including The Mistake and The Golden Child, which was shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award for Best Novel. Her debut book, Out of the Silence, won the 2006 Ned Kelly Award for First Crime Novel and was shortlisted for the Dobby Award for Women's Writing. Wendy works as an editor at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation. Her novel, The Golden Child, is in development as a TV series. But today we're going to be talking about A Little Bird, which is Wendy's uh, most recent book. So, Barry, I'm going to start with you. Barry, The Russian Wife is the 14th book in your Brock and Collar series. Now, many in the audience will be familiar with David Brock. We've got a show of hands. Who knows about David Brock and Kathy Collar? But there will be some who aren't. So could you introduce them to us, please? Yes. Um, the reason why I started writing crime fiction was because in 1989 we were living in Newcastle and Margaret, my wife there, um, was in the house in uh, central Newcastle uh, when the chimneys fell down and the house shook and the television flew across the room in the earthquake. And it was such a strange time after that, um, uh, with so much sort of destruction, the army took over the centre of the city, uh, that I was looking for some sort of outlet, something different to take my mind off, off all this. And I thought, I've always wanted to write a crime novel. Now, I hadn't been in Australia at that time for very long, and I didn't have any contacts or um, uh, insights about what, what uh, the Australian situation was like. But I had a nephew and niece in London who were um, both with the Metropolitan Police, and she was also had access to the latest DNA information, which was just starting at that time. So. Um, I thought they would, you know, they took me on the beat in, in London and, and gave me lots of information. Um, but it, it seemed to me what was interesting about it was that uh, the, the Metropolitan Police, like the police force here, I think, was very heavily male dominated at that time, that it was in a process of change and women were coming into more senior positions. And with my nephew and, and niece, both together in the force, uh, I thought I might have a, a couple, uh, a male and a female, um, Brock, who's an uh, old established detective chief inspector, very experienced, and Kathy Kohler, just starting out as a, as a detective in, in homicide. And um, so the relationship between them is equal. It's not like Morse and Lewis, you know, and Morse talks to Lewis and says, not now, Lewis. You know, it's a sort of servant-lord relationship almost. I wanted them to be equal, but at the same time, their experience is different. And so um, I wrote that story and, and um, 
finally got it published in 1994, and the publishers said they would like uh, they liked the characters and they would like a couple more maybe, and and so I, I started out on a journey that I hadn't anticipated, and really those 14 books have been their journey through aging in in Scotland Yard. I mean, one of the problems we can talk about, if you like, if you have serial characters, um, what do you do about aging? Um, you know, do, uh, do, do you do like Sherlock Holmes, who for 40 years stays the same age, or, or, or do you age them? And of course, if you're writing crime now, the times are changing so rapidly, you know, technology is changing, the the whole process is the legal system's changing, so they have to change too. So for me, it's been a, a sort of life's journey, which has been um, uh, finally got to this point. But um, uh, I have tried to make a, a more realistic aging, particularly of Brock, and of Kathy, who has now reached Detective Chief Inspector herself. She has her own, uh, Scotland Yard has. Um, 24 murder investigation teams and she heads one of these teams so she's at, at the top level in terms of homicide and um, in this book Brock is sidelined he's still a detective chief inspector but the relationship between them is different now I'm hoping you might start us off with a quick reading as well Barry from the front of the book okay well this is how the book starts it's like finding yourself dropped on another planet. Brock was out of sorts, uncharacteristically grumpy, Kathy thought. They were three old colleagues, all of them detective chief inspectors in the Met. David Brock, Bren Gurney, and herself, Kathy Kohler, veterans of Brock's former homicide squad. Though they now worked in different Scotland Yard departments, they tried to lunch together at least once a month, if their schedules allowed, which was why they were now sitting in the two chairman pub in Westminster on a Monday in November, eating pot pies. They don't interview suspects, Brock continued. They never see them. They just sit at their screens all day, following money trails around the globe. I ask one of them, but where are they? Where are the crooks? And he just pointed out the window at the towers of the city in Canary Wharf, then turned back to his computer. Bren laughed. But Kathy could see that Brock was genuinely disconcerted. His hair and beard, silvery white now, and cropped short, looked a bit shaggy and neglected. A big, steady figure in her life, it was unsettling to see him like this. After the debacle of his arrest during the Hampstead murders, the Met had reluctantly agreed to let him come back from retirement and take up his old rank, but not in homicide. There were no vacancies in the 24 murder investigation teams, they told him, and posted him to fraud, where he was clearly a fish out of water. It made Kathy feel sad, especially because the Hampstead murders had been the making of her in her new role as head of one of those teams. Since then, she'd had a series of successes, all cleared up in rapid time. Her team was working well, and she had been featured in an article in one of the Sunday supplements about the new breed of women detectives in the Metropolitan Police. Even her boss, Commander Torrens, head of Homicide and Serious Crime Command, had given her a rare pat on the back, expressing his satisfaction with her performance since she'd stepped out of the shadow of the old guard. He'd meant Brock, of course, for whom she'd worked all those years, 
and her pleasure at the compliment was tinged with regret as she saw him struggling now. What's so embarrassing is I'm about 50 years older and outrank them all, Brock was saying. I'm sitting there like a useless appendage, a waste of space with nothing to contribute. Bren, trying to be supportive, said, but they must be able to use your experience, Brock. Remember that bloke with a Ponzi scheme who started to murder his victims? What was his name? There must be villains like that in the city. No, Bren, fraud is abstract, digital and bloodless. You've no idea. It's another world. He sighed, then roused himself. Anyway, enough of that. What about you, Kathy? What have you been up to? Well, I've got a locked room mystery. Ah, that's more like it. Go on. So she told them the story of Ahmed Majid. Thanks so much, Barry. The interesting thing is that's the 14th book in a series, but because of that, those opening pages, it can be standalone. So um, it, whilst it flows beautifully and it seems like a very easy story, I imagine there's a whole lot of working to get it to the stage where the reader can pick it up, not knowing Brock or Cola. Is that right? Yes. I mean, that's one of the problems of writing a series. I get fed up with describing, you know, the fact that, you know, Kathy's got pale blonde hair. I mean, I, I said it the first few books and then I stopped saying it. And then I got readers complaining that they didn't know what colour her hair was. So, I, you know. so uh, somehow you've got to sort of bring them into the story and then gradually bring them up to date sort of thing. Yeah. Very deftly done. Thank you. Uh, Anna, in the Shadow House, we open with young mum Alex, who's in the car with her two kids. I must say I really, <laughs> I really felt... Uh, a lot for that scene, the squabbling kids, one teenager, one baby. Um, before I get you to read from that scene, can you tell me a bit about Alex and what has brought her to where she is? Yeah, so Alex, um, when you see her in the first scene, she's driving her car into this um, new home, um, this new town. It's actually an eco-village. Um, and in the back, she has uh, her seven-month-old baby and in the passenger seat beside her she has her 14-year-old son Ollie uh, and you very quickly find out that she's fleeing from an abusive relationship but she's basically kind of um, had to wait till he's gone out to work this, this isn't in the book this is how I imagine it she's waited till he's gone out to work and then she's just grabbed whatever she can chucked it in the you know the, the Kmart flexi tubs and the storage boxes and she's just got the hell out and she has had this plan um, of going to this eco village um, which is kind of an hour north of Sydney and very tucked away um, and, and kind of exactly what she needs at this time in her life. And just before I ask Anna to read, uh, I've listened to this book by audiobook which I, which I do frequently and Anna having been an actor, also does the audiobook. So when you hear her read, you're also getting an insight into the print book, but also the audiobook. Over to you, Anna. Oh, I just you. want to say I listen to it too, and it's really, really, it's, it's terrific. But also what Anna does really well is an Australian accent. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> it's which, fabulous. Yeah. Which I kind of decided I wasn't going to do today because yeah. I feel self-conscious enough anyway without a bunch of Aussies staring at me, and I'm, I'm just not going to try and approximate the accent today. But, but, but you, you can, like you can do it, it, can't you? I can, can do it, hopefully. Yeah, Wendy says I can, so. <laughs> All right. Okay, kids, I brought the car to a stop and peered out the windscreen. I think this is it. 
we're here. Neither child replied. Gazing at each of their sleeping faces in turn, Ollie beside me in the front, Kara in the back, I felt a pang of anticlimax. The first time I'd seen Pine Ridge, it had taken my breath away, and I'd been looking forward to seeing their expressions as we drove in. Well, Ollie's expression anyway. At eight months old, Kara couldn't yet tell animal from vegetable, so I wasn't likely to get a reaction from her, but I'd been certain my 14-year-old son would be impressed. Instead, he was snoring. Headphones on, head lolling awkwardly to one side, drool glistening in the corner of his mouth. Kids, I said again, a little louder. As if in response, Ollie's phone lit up in his lap, buzzing softly with a notification. I glared at it, tempted to pick it up and hurl it straight into the nearest bin. Instead, I checked the house number and street name again. Definitely the right address and the description matched. A split level at the far end of the village, the last in a row of four. White walls, blue roof, two balconies and a timber staircase at the side. No one was waiting to greet us, though, which seemed strange until I remembered that I hadn't given an arrival time when I'd emailed a few days earlier. I'd had no idea when or even if we'd be able to get away, so I told them I'd have to play it by ear. No problem, had been the cheerful reply. Just pop into the office when you get here and we'll show you around. But the office had been empty when I'd passed, so I carried on driving along the narrow main road to our allocated unit, following the directions I'd been given. There was no rush. Eventually, either someone would find us or we would find them. I took a breath. The car was cramped and had that family road trip smell, feet and happy meals. Our belongings were packed around us so tightly I'd half expected the windows to burst. Storage cartons, loose shoes and books, jumbo flexi tubs, tubs bought in a hurry from Kmart and stuffed with our dirty laundry. I'd crammed them Tetris style into every inch of available space. An expert job, if I did so so myself. But if there was anything I did well, it was packing up and moving on. I rolled my window down and a fresh breeze pushed its way into the car, mussing my hair like a drunk uncle and bringing with it the sweet, earthy scent of resin. A tingle of excitement skipped across my skin. I live here now. I looked over at Ollie again, ducking my head a little to see under the peak of his cap. It was one of those gorgeous Australian November days, not too hot or sticky, just perfectly pleasant. But my son was bundled up in his usual sloppy green hoodie. It needed a wash. The orange circle on the front bore a tomato sauce stain the size of a 50 cent piece. What's wrong with you? He said, suddenly opening one eye. Why do you keep staring at me? Oh, sorry, you're awake. What? My son held one of his headphones away from his ear and tinny music music escaped from the padded speakers, a thrum of bass overlaid by a single screeching note like an air raid siren. I said, you're awake. Um, obviously. He pushed his cap back and tugged his headphones down around his neck. Why are we stopped? Because we're here. We've arrived. We've arrived. Where exactly have they arrived? If I were to drive there now, what would I see in terms of the grand plan? All right. So um, in the book, in the front of the book, there is a map which 
I drew, by the way, on the front cover. It's not credited to me, which I'm frankly a little annoyed about, but I did draw it. Um, so it's kind of based on a real eco village that I spent some time at, uh, but it's also a, a fictional amalgamation of a lot of different eco villages that, you know, that I found through my research. And, and what they tend to be in kind of, um, rural surrounds but that they're, they're not often completely off grid you know the one that I spent time at was quite close to Gosford train station Gosford hospital um so it was kind of edge of the suburbs but when you drive in you're struck by you know it, it, the the sense of um isolation it feels like you're really tucked away in this uh, and Pine Ridge the fictional um eco village is in kind of a bowl. It's like in a valley. Um, and so you come, you, you drive around the ridge and then the road kind of winds down into the valley. And when you get it, uh, to the bottom, there's a, a dam right at the bottom and all the houses are kind of built around the shore um, of one side of the dam. So if you were to stand among the houses uh, looking over the dam, what you actually see across the valley is... Um, what the land used to be, which is farmland. Uh, and uh, what's very important to the storyline is that there is a single building on the other side. Uh, there's kind of paddocks and there's this single building, which is the farmhouse uh, that belongs to the farmers who own the land on which the eco village was built, if that makes sense. And of course, almost immediately we want to know what's inside, what's happened, what is this house all about? Thank you, Anna. Wendy, in A Little Bird, we meet journalist Jo Sharp, who's come back to the small town where she grew up. Can you tell me a bit about Jo and her family? So Jo grew up in uh, the small country town and left as fast as she could um, soon as she left school. And her story and the reason she wanted to get away was her mother and baby sister, infant sister, disappeared um, what is it, about 20 years before the story starts when she was only eight. And so her life has been um, changed immeasurably by that. She's never heard from again, doesn't know why she went, doesn't know where she went. There are, it, it was a police case for a little while and then a letter arrived saying, I've gone, don't look for me, basically. Um, and so she's grown up being brought up by her father who has been very angry and uh, become an alcoholic and she's come back to the town because she's lost her job in Sydney. She's a journalist for a newspaper there, lost that job and has found out too that her father, though he hasn't told her, um, has a cancer. So she's come up both to look after her father and she gets a job at the town paper, which is not an ordinary paper because the real paper has gone, as so many um, country newspapers have. Instead, there's a newspaper run by somebody's, somebody's donated money to run this newspaper, but all it's allowed to be is good news. So they're, <laughs> they're not allowed to talk about the crimes that happen in this small town, which has become a very difficult um, town where most people, a lot of people have left, a lot of people are poor, there's a lot of drugs and alcohol and, you know, it's a, a sad town. Um, but she's not allowed to write about any of that. She's only allowed to write about all the fun things that happen, like grandparents' day at the school and cricket matches and dances and a Steadfords and the agricultural show and things like that. So, yeah, she's come back with her tail between the legs, basically, <laughs> wondering what the hell she's doing. 
And I'd like you to show us how you open the book and the prologue. It's a great prologue. Um, Arthurville, 1994. My mother took the Mini, a 74 model with squeaky brakes, balding tyres and 120,000 miles on the odometer. A good car, a 15-year-old Falcon station wagon, was out of action. The lights had been left on overnight, the battery was dead and there was no spare cash to replace it. Dad was on an out-of-town shift and didn't like to leave Mum without a car, so he'd cycled to the station on his dodgy old bike. I left for school just before 8.30. I was running late. I was always running late and was glad to escape the noise and the mess and my mother's irritability. Amy was crying. Amy was always crying. She needed feeding. She always needed feeding. And my mother's goodbye had been perfunctory, as her interactions always were since Amy had arrived. A distracted wave. See you later. Have a nice day. According to the initial police report, Bev Ryan, who lived across the road, was walking into town for a cut and colour at 9.30 and had passed by just in time to see Mum close the front door, carry the car seat to the rear of the little pale blue car and clip it in. Bev had said hello, peered at the sleeping baby through the window. What a sweet little thing, all that gorgeous hair, and walked on. Lionel Perkins, who had the garage on the corner, had seen her drive past not long after. He'd admired her profile. She was still a looker despite the two kids, as well as her smooth, smooth gear change. You could always tell a farm girl. She'd waved to Val Darrow, who was sweeping the pavement outside Martin's news agency. Val had seen the greeting but ignored it for reasons even she couldn't fathom. Ray Yee, stacking apples out in the front of Yee's old fruit shop, had seen her turn left onto the main road heading towards the highway. He'd waved, but too late for her to wave back. She'd stopped at the BP on the outskirts of town where Mervyn Ebsworth filled the tank for her. He'd offered to check the oil, the tyres, but she'd already checked them herself. Mervyn, a shy man, especially when it came to women, hadn't said much, but he'd noticed the baby still rosily asleep in her capsule and told her that he and his wife had just had their fourth, about the same age, a boy, Timothy. She'd asked him to pass on her regards to Shirley. She'd passed Errol Simmons and his wife, Wendy, on the highway. They were coming in from Haringey to take Wendy's mother to the hospital. It was the fourth emergency trip they'd made in the last two months. The other three had turned out to be indigestion, but better safe than sorry. Errol recognised the mini immediately. He'd sold it to my father five years before for a bit too much. It had been his kid's runaround, was well past its use-by date, and had always felt vaguely guilty about it. Phil Coombs, local stock and station agent, had been heading to town on the back road from Dalhunty. He'd seen Mum waiting at the intersection when he'd turned back onto the highway. He'd flashed his lights and grinned. He'd known her since they were kids, had worked as a jackaroo for her old man, but she hadn't returned his smile, just lifted two fingers off the steering wheel in acknowledgement. He'd watched in his rearview mirror as she put the little car into gear and turned left onto Oxley Road. She was heading east, following the path of the river back towards its source. How was Phil to know that he would be the last person to see her that day, that he would be the last person to see her at all before she became a headline? There'd been no signs, no portents or none that any of us had seen at least, not even me, not even in retrospect. Thanks very much, Wendy. A little bit like Barry's book, that prologue's very important because we're dealing with a small town. It's difficult to work out, um, to, to, to introduce the field of characters to your readers and then to move on. So within that prologue, what I liked was that we get an introduction to where we are and to the and to the mystery. Was it a difficult piece to write? And did you write it at the beginning or at the end of the book? I wrote it, I wrote it first, but interestingly enough, I had a section that was in there that that's why I actually forgot I had the prologue until you asked me to read it, because I split it in two, and now the second part of that is now in the middle of the book. So yeah, 
yeah, so it was was written first, but it's also somewhere else. <laughs> it's a great hook at the front, at the start of the book. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Because um, it, it sort of sets up the scene, but also the mystery. And so we have that question that propels us further. I think it's really cool as well hearing it after you've read it because there's so many things in there that are important and that, you know, they're threads that you tie up later. It's very cool to hear that, yeah. It's also, it's, it's, the town bef- it's the town in the 90s. So the idea was too that you got a sense of the town before it became as difficult as it is now. So that, that's a town that's more lively where people are doing things, you know, People are sweeping the street, and there's a <laughs> what I liked about it. Just rereading it was, you know, there was some, there was a fruit shop. There's, you know, in in 2018, there's no longer a fruit shop. There's no, there's none. There's no news agent, or you know, all of that stuff is gone. So yeah. So, so Wendy, the topic "What Lies Below the Surface" is a very broad one, particularly when we're talking about mystery and crime. But my question for you is, what's the lure of the protagonist returning to the small town where he or she has grown up? Why is that such a device that is of interest to many writers, including yourself? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's age. <laughs> um, uh, well, well, specifically, I think it was a bit of a lockdown book, to be honest, and, and it is a lure in general. But I think I wrote this when we were all in lockdown and children were separated from families and we weren't able to get out west to see our family. And I did, I did think a lot about, you know, what it means um, to leave a place and then to never go back, which is what we did. You know, my husband and I left a small town like that and, and went to the city and never went back. And I wanted to, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted my 30-year-old to come back. <laughs> so I wrote a novel about a 30-year-old coming back. Yeah. But it's, it's also a, a really interesting variation on the classic, um, you know, mur- uh, murder mystery type of story uh, which has two timelines in it. You know, the the event happens, the detectives come along, and there's the story of how they proceed and how what they're guessing and what they're trying to find out and so on, and that moves forward in time. But at the same time, to understand what happened then, they've got to move back in time. They've got to look at what happened an hour before, the day before, a month, and it may well be a whole generation before, before that's key to... The murder. So you've got these two timelines, and you've brought them together in a very interesting way. I um I, I actually started this novel wanting not to do that. So I've never written a novel from a singular standpoint where it just happens in one time. And I thought this time that I would, and then Mary appeared, the second character from the past, and yeah, exactly what you were just saying happened. This I couldn't sort out the present crime without going. I mean, I couldn't work. I couldn't write about what was happening in the present without bringing somebody in from the past. And, um, yeah, which, I mean, I really admire. So the, your two books where you've just, you, you do have things that happened in the past, but the action happens in the present. And that's what I, I, I was determined to do and I couldn't. <laughs> and, Barry, not only does the action happen in the present, but it happens in a completely different world to the world that, that Wendy and, indeed, Anna described. It's the world of art. Can you tell me about the place of art in the Russian way? I've always been um, uh, loved art and I've been fascinated by it. Um, And um, I'm not sure. I think it might have been the um, Leonardo 
uh, portrait, uh, uh, the savior of the world. Um, some guys found it in America, I think, and paid about $1,100 for it, and then managed to persuade these top experts that it, um, you know, is actually a Leonardo. And uh, until then, it had been written off as one of his, um, you know, apprentices who'd done it. Um, and by the time they'd finished, they'd ramped it up that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia paid almost half a billion American dollars for this painting. And, I, I, you know, the, the, the top end of the art market is so crazy. And, of course, um, where there's big money like that, there's, there's crime and forgery. I mean, um, uh, one expert um, said that uh, Picasso, during his lifetime, uh, painted, uh, drew 24,000 artworks, of which 60,000 are in the United States. <laughs> uh, and so I, I thought, you know, there'd be a wonderful... A wonderful um, subject for fraud, you see. It would get Brock out of the, away from the screens and out into the real world again. Also, it would mean, because it's international um, forgery and fraud, it would mean that he could go to some interesting places, which for the last couple of years we haven't been able to go to. <laughs> so he goes to Miami, for instance, um, where there's an annual art fair which brings together all the aspiring artists and uh, dealers around the world um, and um, I have been to to one of those and um, you know it's, it, I, I thought it was a crazy thing and uh, and then he goes to New York as well and then he comes back to London so so there's uh, more travel than he usually does in his books it's not just confined to London as well as being an architect, you also paint. Yeah. Uh, do you think the eye that you need as an architect and also a painter pervades your writing at all? Um, well, in the sense that I think both architecture, for me, both architecture and uh, painting are, are about place. You know, buildings are different from motor cars because they're locked in one place and, and they have to respond to that place. And, um, and similarly, landscape painting, which is what I was most interested in, is very much an expression of place. And in terms of how I write uh, crime fiction, I um, always begin with the place. Until I can imagine the place, the setting for the story, I can't imagine the characters and, the, and what's going to happen. So, I, I, you know, usually it, after... When the publishers asked for uh, some more with these two characters, I thought, well, how do you do that? And I thought, well, London, like any big city, is a series of villages or small places and with their own individual characters and different types of people who are living there. So that in each book, I can just go to a different part of London, look at its history, look at um, you know the kind of people who have settled there, the migrants who have come to that place. And so... You know, the characters grow out of the place and then the crimes grow out of the characters. You know, what kind of murder would they commit? Thank you. Anna, 
I would almost say the opposite for you, I think, from previous conversations we've had, that you've trained as an actor, mm. and correct me if I'm wrong, but an actor is all about character. Mm. Is that where your work starts? Yeah, it is. I would say definitely for me, story begins and ends with character. But I really, what you said, Barry, really resonates because until you can visually, for me, until I can visually picture the place, I can't see or feel or hear what my characters are going to be doing, uh, how they're going to be doing it, how they're going to be interacting with other people. So place is really important. And I think that setting in place really informs who the characters are as well, you know, how they're going to be interacting with their environment is is just as important as what's going on internally. And yet is it true that an early draft of the book wasn't set in the Echo Village? So, And did that change, when you found the Echo Village, did that change the way the characters interacted? Oh, it just changed it so much, yeah. For, for anyone who doesn't know, and I've talked about this a fair bit on um you know, different things that I've done because it, it was a really harrowing experience. Um, I wrote a first draft of this novel that just did not work at all. Um, and I was very keen, you know, I'd, I, I'd only written one novel before and I'd done that on my own terms, my own time. Um, and so I kind of thought that's what you do for the second one. And I'd also heard a lot of writers saying, write the first draft with the door closed. You know, it's for you. Once you've got your second draft underway, then you can open the doors up and let people in. So I was like, okay, have the door closed. Don't show anybody. Got to do it myself. And it was like 90,000 words of something that just didn't work at all because I hadn't checked. I hadn't, I just hadn't bounced ideas around. I'd just done it all in here and it didn't work. Anyway, so, um, that draft, I had one timeline, one POV in Bristol, UK, one here in Sydney, and then the two of them were going to meet up in Guatemala. So, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's really funny <laughs> because it was never going to work, I don't think, um, specifically, you know, not with the story that I had in mind anyway. Um, and it was my publisher here in Australia said to me, one of the reasons why this draft doesn't work is because, you know, your story is not anchored to any one place. It feels very untethered. It's floating around all over the place. You've got nothing that's really anchoring the characters and the story together. So um, in that first failed draft, I had a character whose dream it was to build an eco village. And that was um, all part of a sort of a subplot about a particular community of people that lived a certain way. So I thought, right, well, how can I make that place a reality? Okay, let's research eco villages. Maybe there's something in that. And I discovered there was actually an eco village about 20 minutes down the road from me. On that day, when I found out that that place was real, it was, you know, I think the next day they were having an open day because they were a, you know, a demonstration eco village. So I booked my place on it. And as I drove through the gates on that open day, I was like, yes, this is it. And then all of a sudden this new story came to life. I could see my characters walking around. I could see what they were doing. And also that eco village um, that, was, that is near my house, it had been built over a horticultural research station. So dotted amongst all these beautiful, gleaming new eco houses, which, you know, it's not all like hobbit houses and stuff. They're really gorgeous kind of um, architectural wonders. Um, but in amongst all of this newness is all these old sheds, laboratories, like 
abandoned greenhouses with the kind of, you know, the, the plastic sheeting flapping in the wind. And um, it was so interesting to me. And I said to the woman guiding us around, I said, what are all these things? What are all these places? And she said, oh, yeah, you know, it's a horticultural research station. And we, when we arrived, it was a bit weird because there were all these labs everywhere. And we were like, well, what happened here once? And oh, I just went, I've got it. I've got the story. And that's all. I don't need to be here anymore. I'm going to go. <laughs> Wendy, what most impressed me, um, well, many things impressed me about a little bird, but what I was particularly drawn to was the way that you told the story almost like a collage. So you use newspaper articles and you use different medium. So um, blogs, websites, and, and that's something that is not new to you uh, in, in The Golden Child and I think your other work. You, you mix mediums in order to tell the story. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Um, I have a terrible, messy writing process. So I might um, write the last chapter first or part of a middle of the book chapter and 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 it's interesting that you use the word collage because basically that's what I end up doing and I keep writing and writing and hoping that all of these kind of disparate things will eventually add up into a, a story that fits together and somehow it does it's kind of like magic but it is yeah it's I do use a kind of collage system to write it so yeah and I, I think our stories all <clears throat> when you think about your own life story it always involves so many bits and pieces of other people's life stories and the past and the people you're with and your friends and the things that you read. And I think every novel I've done has had elements of that um, because I just, I, it always strikes me that your story can come from lots of directions as I'm writing and not just, especially if you're writing a first person narrative. Um, <clears throat> sometimes it's good to get away from that too and bring in another perspective. So a question for everybody. Um, as we as social media becomes more prevalent, does the way that you want to tell stories change in terms of using blogs, using websites, or does do you want to try and ignore it all? Um, Barry, what, what do you think? Uh, I'm the last person to answer. I think I'm, I, I haven't been able to keep up, I'm afraid. I think you have. I mean, that's that's why I asked you because I think with David Brock and and the, and this this the Russian wife, he is um, grappling with a new world, not only a new part of the police, but new ways to get information. Um, and and obviously, when you're aging your protagonists, they age with the technology. So was that an interesting? Yeah, field I can to understand explore? the aging. <laughs> It's a matter of keeping him alive, really. <laughs> I should say that, I mean, that that's only half the book because Kathy also has a story which is completely different. It's not about art forgery. And um, so she has to be alive in a different sort of way. She has to be much more sort of vigorous or active physically in her story. Her story is about what, um, what they call noble cause corruption where uh, a police officer um, knows that somebody's guilty uh, but can't get the evidence to prove it, uh, knows that they'll act again and innocent people will be hurt and takes the law into their own hands in order to prevent that from happening. So they, they do the wrong thing for the right reason. And she's faced with a case like that. And when she gets involved in it, it becomes very, very dangerous for her, and she then is at risk. 
so so that that's a separate story. And in a way, a bit like you're t talking about a collage, I was collaging these two stories together, and I found that a really interesting thing because with most of the Brock and Kohler stories, they're on the same case, and and they're just both working it in different ways. But in this case, they're there's a sort of juxtaposition, a moving between the two stories, which which uh, I enjoy doing. Yeah, and I think Anna, that's that probably strikes a chord with you as well, because um, you also have a dual narrative, um, but a, a clear dual narrative in terms of um, point of view and chapter headings. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I think it's a really really interesting thing to talk about whether or not you know the advancement of technology changes the way we want to tell stories. I don't think for me, it doesn't change the way I want to tell stories as in using mixed media and things like that. But it does change, I think, the way that we consume stories, you know, uh, our attention spans are shorter, for example, you know, we do want faster narratives. Um, and so I'm quite aware of that, that I think if you're writing in the crime thriller genre, you are competing with streaming services and Netflix and the ways that people are, you know, you're competing with people who flick on their Instagram, they go, bum, 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 I, I've just consumed three different tiny mini narratives and now I'm, you know, I'm kind of fulfilled for the next five minutes and then I'll go back and I'll, I'll look at another few mini narratives. And so it's quite, you know, you, you, I, I am quite aware uh, that, that our brains are needing things to move a bit quicker. Um, my story, The Shadow House, is largely about uh, parental fear in an age of technology. And so one of the things that I wanted to explore in this is my fear as a parent. My kids are five and seven. Um, and I am kind of, my mind is a bit blown by technology these days. I, uh, my son has got a Nintendo. I don't know how to plug it into the, the screen to make it work. And he's endlessly frustrated with me. And I, I had a, a conversation with a friend who was raising, a, she was a single mother raising a 14 year old. And she was kind of being very emotionally open about how difficult it is. And I think that, that parents of, um, you know, my slash our generation who grew up without the internet. It's a really hard world to navigate and we're trying to advise and guide our children in a world that we don't fully understand. We're not fully engaged with. It's like our children are living on a different planet and we're on this other planet going, you just have to do this. You've got to go over there. You'll be fine. Go and, you know, like we don't know. And they actually kind of speak a different language as well in some ways. And so it, it I think it's it's definitely something that we're all exploring. I really want to explore it. I think that uh, fear of technology, fear of the internet, uh, fear of how that affects us, particularly with regards to our children, is just fascinating at the moment. And Wendy, that's something really that you've looked at previously. And for me, I would say the golden child, that was really one of your, your interests. Can you talk to that a little bit? Uh, yeah, well, the, I... I had children, I've got older children who are in their late 20s, 30s, and then we had some 10 years later. And so when I wrote The Golden Child, that was five years ago, I guess now, we had a teenage daughter <clears throat> coming up. And, yeah, and, and that, so that novel was really about how, as Anna said, how crazy you feel with kids who are just doing things that you've got no idea about and what do you do about it and what dangers there are out there for them because, yeah, there are plenty. And and 
also what evil children can do with this technology that that's what the golden child was also about yeah but also how, uh, you know, because in the shadow house that there are a lot of parents who are terrified of those things and they're constantly pointing out how much evil there is out there, how much awful stuff is on the internet, how accessible it is, it's terrible. But there are also these kids who are not scared of it, who yeah, are yeah. navigating it fine because they speak that language and it's actually oftentimes our fear of it that is more harmful. Well, we, we found it quite useful, for instance, when our daughter um, <clears throat> at about 15 decided to disappear for a night to say I'm going to stay at a friend's and we knew the friend and rang the friend because I needed I needed an internet code so I rang up the friend's father who said no we haven't seen Nell and and we had to backtrack all of her whereabouts for that day but we used Facebook of course to do that our son the younger son went and contacted all her friends on Facebook so that we could work out where she'd gone and sort of reverse engineered, <laughs> did discover where she was, but she was out of um, <clears throat> out of radio range. <laughs> so we couldn't get her back till the next day, by which time she'd had 3,000 messages. And so, yeah, it's, it's, there, are, there, are, there are benefits and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've just um, noticed the time and I'm mindful that there are going to be questions in the audience. Oh, I'm just going to I'm just going to repeat the question for the Zoom people. So um, the question is from Petronella McGovern, who's also an author here, and um, is about the research. How did you research your work during the lockdown? Well, I sort of based it on a town I grew up in. But what I'd also done over the years, and perhaps everyone's done this, is Googling family um, on Trove <laughs> and finding part of the novel is about a gossip column. So I did a lot of looking at gossip columns in um, country town newspapers. That was my main research and I loved doing that and finding just bizarre things, which is what gave me the idea, you know, like my father's family lived in Burke in the 50s and there'd be things like Mr and Mrs James have gone to Sydney for the weekend with their sons Anthony and Perry. We hope they have a lovely time. And that's in the newspaper. So that's what I kind of filled this up with. So, yeah, that was lovely research, actually. <laughs> Barry, what sort of research most interested you in this last book? Uh, well, yes, unfortunately, I wasn't able to go to the places that Rock went to. But, I, um, um, I mean, I, it, it's so wonderful now what you can find on the web. I mean, I, <clears throat> you know, in New York, I, I couldn't remember you know, how you move about Penn Station, you know, so, you know, you just look it up and work it out, you know, how you have to go two floors down to buy the ticket and, uh, and it sort of comes back to you. Um, so I rely on that very, very heavily. Um, but uh, uh, apart from that, it was, it, was, it was more memories of places that I've been to that I've used. Yeah. you, Anna? Well, I mean, as Petronella said I, I could actually go to the places because they were local to me so th that was a huge help particularly because I was on the deadline so I was like I don't have time to imagine these things I'm gonna go find them um, but uh, interestingly I'm just started work on a, a new book um, which will largely be about travel and uh, itinerance and van life and life on the road and for uh, several reasons I'm looking at setting it in WA I've never been to WA I've never lived in a van um, so it's like it's I'm, I'm aware that I'm setting myself a, a real challenge in this climate because I cannot get to those places and I know for a fact that it's heaps more helpful to me if I can see and feel and touch and you know smell these places uh 
But as Barry said, you know, it's amazing what you can find. You can literally go on on like Google Earth and and drive the route. You can drive yes. it. You know, the blogs, there are countless YouTube blogs. You can YouTube anything and there'll be someone with a camera showing you and telling you what it is. It's actually much easier than I thought. I probably will have to get over there at some point if I do set it there. Fingers crossed. I think there is a, a, a risk in this, though, that, you know, you, you become so infatuated with your research that you want to tell the reader everything you've discovered you know and and the, you really have to prune hard you know to remember that the important thing is the story mm. and and also readers read read things into the book that might not be there when I, my last book the accusation i set somewhere similar to here sort of out west but I, but then I had to change it, and I was doing a tour, and we were in Cessnock, I think, and somebody said, "Oh, you said it here, didn't you?" I was saying, "I've never been here before, but yes." <laughs> so, so everywhere I went, it was set there. <laughs> oh well, you captured the spirit of the, lots of places. <laughs> We've got a second question up the back, please. If you tell me the question, then I'll I'll uh, say it. So it's a question about a point of view used in your books. Um, how did you choose it, and does it change? Can I start with Wendy? I've got a first person and a third person perspective in this and I do that a lot and sometimes I'll write something and I'll just really like the narrative perspective that I've started in and other times I'll change I'll start in first person not like it see if it works in third change back sometimes I'll try second person um and it's just the one that clicks eventually a voice works sorry um yeah, I was interested actually thinking about. Uh, have you all used first person at some in one of your books? I think, and I was really interested in that because it is a very intimate um, form of narrative. It, it means that the character is talking directly to the reader, um, and um, I, uh, I I've only used it once in a book I wrote about Lord Howe Island um, and. It, um, it, it's one of my favorite books, actually. I, I, you know, I enjoyed writing in that way, but of course, the Brock and Cola ones, I'm stuck with third person, yeah, which is a more remote, I think, yeah, yeah. It, um, mine was a really deliberate decision. Um, much like Wendy, I have uh, a POV in the past and a POV in the present, so it made sense for me to use third person for the past and first person in the present, but also. The POV in the present, Alex, um, I, it's really important that the reader is in her head because a lot of what goes on with Alex is about uh, her not being able to trust her own thoughts. And so it's for me, it was really important um, that I convey that intimacy, um, which threw up its own challenges, I have to say, because with The Safe Place, it was all third person. I had three different... Uh, I wasn't actually. Nina was first person. But with this, I found it really difficult, actually, because... Um, I think, you know, description becomes a bit of a problem because everything has to be filtered through uh, the first person gaze. It has to be everything that you write has to be true to that character. You can't be a kind of omniscient narrator hovering above and you can't deliver this beautiful prose that, that describes a building if that's not what your character would say. So that becomes a bit of a problem. And I, I actually found first person quite uncomfortable, which I, I was surprised at, you know, being an actor. I thought, oh, this will be a, a breeze, but it wasn't. It was quite hard. Yeah. We've got a question on Zoom. This is coming from Judith, and it's a question for you, Barry. Um, Barry, do you have any specific thoughts about 
what lies below the surface in the mind and actions of the perpetrators? Uh, Big question. Gosh, yes. Um, yes, it's a, is it a question about um, how you gradually reveal that, um, how through the um, imagination of the detectives, the, the inner mind of the perpetrator has to be gradually exposed or, or, or they're being forced into a situation where they suddenly have to um, reveal themselves, which is what happens with Kathy, where she she thinks she's having um, uh, a useful dialogue with the perpetrator and then suddenly discovers that the perpetrator is turning the tables on her. Uh, uh, so you can exploit then that, um, that insidious sort of unknown level that's going on. It's a difficult thing to discuss in a forum like this where people haven't necessarily read the books because what lies below the surface is exactly what the reader wants to find out. Yeah. Um, is that always the way, Wendy? Is there always something in everything you write that lies below the surface that isn't immediately apparent? Yes, I hope so. <laughs> I, every now and then you get a reviewer who says, oh, I guessed it in the first five pages, but generally there's, you have to read on. Yes. There's something hidden or there's there's not much point in keeping on going. And sometimes if it's hidden from you, that's that's what you, sometimes is really good when you're writing it and you, you think you know and then it turns and changes and what you think was going to happen isn't what happened. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You're saying yes, Barry. Is that something that happens for you in terms of when you write, you don't necessarily know what might come? Yes, I I, I, I do try to you know I do the research and and try to plan out what I'm going to do. But at a certain point, my my head's full and I just have to start writing, and then I may well discover um, that actually what I thought was going to happen isn't going to happen. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it it's too obvious. It doesn't doesn't satisfy. And then you're in real trouble. Um, but I have great faith in, um, there was a, a French mathematician called Poincaré who who come up with the most amazing things, um, but nobody could understand how he did it. And he couldn't uh, understand how he did it either. And he believed that, uh, you know, you get to a certain point, you've worked, you've worked and worked and worked, and then just forget it, just put it away. And your mind will go on working even though you don't know that it's working. This is what he believed. And, and there are many stories about him. He'd be uh, getting onto a tram with a friend and they're in the middle of a conversation. And as his foot uh, lands on the floor of the tram, he suddenly comes out with the answer to the formula for some extraordinary formula that nobody's been able to find, um, a proof or, or something. And uh, it's something that he stopped working on you know, several months before. And his mind just came out with it. And he thinks we have this capacity um, if we just let it, if we just trust it, which I find rather comforting, actually, as an author. <laughs> uh, I think that's a perfect note to end on. So trust and have comfort. Uh, thank you so much to my guests, Barry and Wendy and Anna, and, of course, to our audience. That was fun. It's always nice re-listening to uh, events that have gone well. Thanks so much to our Bad Podcast listeners for spending the hour with us. We're very much looking forward to your company next episode when we'll be surprising you with another session from the 2021 
Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About Crime book club. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime.